Welcome to Mastermind, the show where you learn to develop and master your skill from the best of the best. Yes, your host, Mr. G. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self-mastery. Today's guest is an educator, historian, and public speaker. She's the product of a teacher who is her mother and a judge who is her father. So you know she was destined for greatness. She has her bachelor's degree in history, a master's in social studies education, and a doctorate in education. Her focus is on issues of race, class, and gender equality in education. She has an extensive Black Studies curriculum that teaches through her nonprofit organization called Keep Your Change, KYC. KYC focuses on helping young Black students gain self-confidence, encouragement, and a deep understanding of what it means to be Black in the 21st century. KYC also helps mitigate the damages caused by the public school system that often undervalues Black children and fails to prepare them for the necessary skills to be successful in life. She believes that Black people are responsible for making their community better, and I could not agree more. Let's welcome Miss Naima Robinson. Naima, how you doing today? I am great. Thank you so much, Mr. G. I'm so happy to be here with you on Mastermind. All right. We are happy to have you. Like We are definitely in for a treat today. Um, I'm excited. Me too. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Um, okay. So let's let's just start from you know what what kind of started this all. I guess you you know as a as a child, like where did this whole thing develop? As far as you know, you your interest in in history and things like that. So I really loved history when I was in school, and I also really loved politics even as a young kid. Like I remember being in the fourth grade. This was back when Walkmans were a thing, mm-hmm. and on the bus. Oh man, you took on, it back. Yeah, I took Walkmans. It back. <laughs> Walkmans. I don't, I don't even think the like it, the listeners are gonna even know what a walk. You guys might have to look a, look this up. Walkman. <laughs> so I, on my Walkman on the bus on the way to school in, in the fourth grade, I listened to tapes of Malcolm X mm. um, speeches. And that was in the fourth grade. Like I just, wow. I always loved history. And then in high school, um, I got a perfect score on the global regents exam. Wow! And that kind of like, just gave me this idea that I was like the history person. Hmm. And when I went to college, I majored in history because they told me, pick your um, major based on your favorite subject, which is probably not the best advice, but that was the <laughs> advice that I got was whatever your favorite subject is. And of course, mine was history. Mm. And so I started studying history in college. Um, But I realize now that it really wasn't all about the history so much, or even the politics, which I thought it was. I actually started majoring in political science and then switched to history. But what I was always drawn to was, was culture. Like Mm -hmm. that's what really drew me in. And one of the ways that I describe myself now is as a cultural warrior. Like I I have always been about the culture. And I think that is what motivated me um, throughout my, you know, childhood and and college career was like trying to find what I felt was like this lost culture. Cause it's not just about the lost history. It's really Mm -hmm. about, it's about a lot more than that. And I, and so I feel like, um, that's what I call myself now, 
a cultural warrior. And then I also think because I went to a lot of institutions, I never went to a historically or a predominantly black um, college mm-hmm. or university. And so in predominantly white institutions and then in predominantly white professional environments, mm-hmm. I always felt like I had to prove my intellectual you know, abilities. Mm. I always felt like they were they like they were in doubt until I proved them. They were never just taken for granted, like it might be for a white man. Yeah, I think and, a lot of black people feel like that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So so I took it as achieving something like a doctorate degree would be like proof, you know, as soon as I walk in the door of my act of my intellectual abilities and that, you know, that that would um benefit me like professionally and i guess that it does do we wait for white people white teachers to gain this you know comfort talking about race in order to to start having these conversations with you know the black students students of color and you know other students throughout just education i so i think you used a really important word there and that's comfort and because of their status they really feel like they're entitled to to comfort. And they also feel like if they're uncomfortable, something's not right. If Mm. they're uncomfortable, you've probably done something you should not have done. Mm. (laughs) You know, it's your fault. Mm. Um, And and they're a powerful group in terms of, you know, protecting their privilege and what they think is their right to that level of comfort. So, they they're they've been a strong lobby in fighting against um, uh, implicit bias trainings, diversity trainings, racial literacy training. They, they've they've fought back because it makes them uncomfortable. So, I think that we have to develop. I mean, I do think that it's important to sort of find a, a safe spaces where they're comfortable being uncomfortable where, you know, and they can work through that discomfort because in that area, that space of discomfort, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of room to grow, but they have to feel safe enough to be in that space of discomfort. Um, And I don't think that necessarily they feel um, uh, safe enough to do that. So, and should we have to coddle that? You know, I don't think we should have to. I don't mm. think we should have to coddle that. I don't think we should have to, you know, appease that and always make them comfortable. But they're a powerful lobby, and you know, it's something to, to that we have to at least consider. Hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, with with uh, just you know your dissertation and definitely mentioning um, you know focusing on race. I think sometimes when we have these conversations about race, we don't identify kind of what race race means and what racism is. So what would you like, what would you say racism is? I feel like sometimes we have just different definitions of it. So yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And we live in such a complicated society where everything is complicated. Race, racism, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I talk to people all the time who think it's racist to even acknowledge race. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man! Yeah, you, I'm sure you've seen that. And, oh and yes, think, uh, indeed, yeah. indeed. If you mention Children it, you are a racist. <laughs> yeah, if you even bring it up, you're a racist. Um, so, what is racist? What is race? You know, what is racism? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I get, and I do get asked that a lot. I even get asked, um, you know, people of color ask all the t- all the time. You know, are they are they black or you know can black people be racist? Mm. Um, and those are really important conversations to have, but I don't think there are any easy answers. There's lots of different types of racism. There's you know. Uh, personal or interpersonal racism, there's systemic racism, there's institutional racism, there's even internalized racism. Hmm. Um, But I think a simple way to understand racism, I I learned this from Claude Anderson, the the economist. Oh yeah, yeah, I know Claude Anderson. (laughs) And I, I, I like how simple he breaks it down. He said, it's like a, it's like a race, like a competition, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody lines up. You know, a gun goes off and you're Mm -hmm. headed for the finish line. But um, it's a it's a system of group dynamics. That's the way he describes it, a system of group dynamics. Um, And it's also a system where one group is considered superior to another or in, in the case of the system of racism and white supremacy. You know, the quote white group is considered superior to the others, the non white. Mm-hmm. And that system plays out in politics, law, education, you know, um, employment, housing, health. All of our systems are affected by that by that basic dynamic where white um, quote white people as a group, as a collective, are considered superior and have more access uh, and more protection in the system than people who are not white. Okay, I think I kind of understand. Um, what you're saying, but also too, I'm thinking about like a power dynamic, right? That comes along with it. Is that it is? If I didn't say that, I meant to. It's (laughs) definitely about it. It's a power. It's a definite power dynamic. A power relationship. Yeah, it's a hierarchy, and Mm. and the and the people with the power at the top of the system are people who are European descended or um are white, and they've agreed that that's the system that they're going to work with. Just with kids in general, what are some like questions that you've heard from them? Like some interesting questions and, you know, how did you go about responding to some of them? Just based on, uh, I guess we will go history first, history first. So um, I get asked to speak at places a lot for like Black History Month. And then I'm a huge Kwanzaa, um, you know, you know, I've always done the Kwanzaa. So I get asked Mm -hmm. to do that a lot. And one of the things that I talk about that I think students respond to the most is Dr. Joy DeGruy's post-traumatic slave syndrome. And when you talk about, whenever I talk to students about about post-traumatic slave syndrome, I try to get them to understand that a lot of their own what she calls like an antipathy for your, for your own culture, your own um, ethnic or cultural heritage is a part of post-traumatic slave syndrome, right? Mm. So I get questions all the time where it's really people, people of color, non-white people trying to get out of the system, right? They mm-hmm. don't wanna be identified uh, with black people Certainly not with black people, because that's the bottom of the of the hierarchy, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so they definitely don't want to be identified with that. They're trying to find a way out, trying to get closer to whiteness 
you know, as close as possible. Um, and people of color do it in all different ways. We, we might do it in the way we behave, where we dress, the mm -hmm. way we, who we hang out with, you know, we might do it with sports or business or mm -hmm. money. Um, and that's really all just a part of post-traumatic slave syndrome. It's really just all a part of trying to flee, trying to get out of the race because we have learned through the system, we've internalized a lot of racism. Mm, and, I think and we've, yeah. I think and it, it just comes up all the time with students. <laughs> and I, I, I just try to get them to see it. It's a distorted self-concept, you know, mm -hmm. and it's an internalized like inferiority complex. And so we have this almost hatred for ourselves. But once you see it, I think once you kind of put it out there mm -hmm. and you like you name it, mm. then it, then students, you know, even young people are able to see it a little bit better when you name it. So, Absolutely. you know, I, I think yeah. it also uh, kind of humanizes the uh, the the people in our community and in different areas that are black that, you know, have these negative ideas and connotations about being black or they right. just don't want to be black like that right. kind of brings it to an understanding right and we don't have to like when we when we when we are around these people to identify them as coons or as certain names and this type of stuff um and we can understand like they are really kind of caught up in this you know i think that's one of the things that i've learned from being a teacher is that you know we are, there's a lot of healing that has to be done. We've been traumatized. That's why she uses the term post-traumatic slave syndrome. We've been traumatized mm. by centuries of um, slavery and, and discrimination and violence. It really the violence that we don't even talk about, the mental, psychological, physical violence. Um, so yeah, we, we have to identify that like we've been traumatized and in some ways, we really are, um, I don't want to pathologize Black people or make us appear to be ill, but there is a tremendous amount for of, sure, um, for sure. <laughs> of, you know, there's even mental illness. There, it, mm -hmm. you, know, you could describe it as a mental illness. And it, it has to be like addressed. One of the things that I think students respond to a lot is that we'll just talk about colorism. We don't use the term racism. We talk about colorism. And or, or I'll ask, have you ever heard of anyone being made fun of because of their complexion, because they're, you know, too dark mm -hmm. or because their nose is too big or their mm -hmm. lips are too big? And they've all experienced that. Mm -hmm. they, they're familiar with it. I, I, where I teach, there are a lot of Southeast Asian students from Bangladesh and uh, Pakistan and parts of Southeast Asia and mm -hmm. they and India. And they are very familiar with this. In the Caribbean, they're very familiar with this. In the mm -hmm. Dominican Republic, they're very familiar with this. So we talk about that and talk about how that is uh, systemic, how that is a, um, a part of white supremacy. And then once we kind of break through that, once they understand that, then they can understand, well, white supremacy is a larger system that, that puts white people at the top of a hierarchy ahead of everyone else that's not white. Wow, and and then they can kind of you know understand, but and I'm you gotta we gotta be patient with ourselves mm -hmm. too and with each other, because I I I grew up with hearing image hearing um negative stereo you know negative stereotypes about um my nose I always got made fun of because my nose was big, 
you know, and these are just, you know, I don't think that even from my own family, I don't think that they didn't love me. I just think that we've picked up so many negative self images, um, you know, and, and in inferiority complexes and all of it, we've picked up a lot of it. Yeah, that is definitely. And we pass it on to the next generation. Now, what do, what do you say to people that's like, you know, this stuff is way too painful. Like, I don't want to be seeing Black people hanging from trees and being lynched like that. Can we just forget about that? Like, can we just move on? <laughs> what do you think about that, that mindset? Well, I do think that that's, um, that's why uh, Brian Stevenson put together that, that monument in, the, in Alabama, because it is a, such a painful history that we would want to just turn away from it and not look at it. Um, but I think we owe it, you know, I don't want to go crazy, but I think we owe it to our ancestors to acknowledge that they survived, you know, what they went through and that they survived and that we are here because they survived that. And to also honor and acknowledge, you know, their life, their existence. So all of those things, I think, you know, we're finally at a place where we can do it. I think we're far enough removed, you know, that we can look back and um, honor and acknowledge that. Because what happens is people that go through traumatic experiences don't talk about it. It's part mm. of the part of the symptoms of, of having that um post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? They don't talk about what they went through. Like mm -hmm. You can meet someone who came back from a war and they saw all these horrible things in war and they'll never talk about it. Mm -hmm. So, you, you, you know, a few generations removed, we can talk about things like Tulsa. We can talk about things like the lynchings, the hundred years of lynching. You know, we can just, you know, finally acknowledge and give the, the due respect to those people, um, to our ancestors. So, yeah. I mean, it's got to be done. That's true. It's not going to be easy. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. But I feel like we owe it to them. And and I I use that as like fuel. It's like a mission. You know, it's motivating. Yeah, I feel like you know, you know, some some sometimes I hear the word the words never forget, just highlighting the importance of a historical moment. I feel like that is definitely one of those to never forget. You know. So what, one of the things that I learned with the students that I worked with uh, this summer was that, you know, the, the idea of Blackness, um, you know, they really didn't feel invested in the idea of Blackness the way that I thought they did. Mm -hmm. or I thought they would. You know, the, the idea of Blackness as like Black is beautiful, that's from the 60s and the 70s. These students, these young people today, they don't have those same values. You know, they haven't grown up in that. Or, you know, all of the movements that we took, you know, in the 30s, the negritude movement, the Black is beautiful movement, you know, the Black power movement, those mm -hmm. are dated for these students. So they didn't have an investment in Blackness. Um, and we talked about Blackness as a global political identity, not just an identity for Black American. I think that they have this idea that Black is really specific to Native Black Americans who are born in America, not even immigrant Black Americans. Mm -hmm. um, so we looked at some of the experiences of Black people in other parts of the world. And we talked about... Um, we, we read some some things we talked about in Jamaica, how a middle class family that's, you know, brown might be called colored and they would never, ever use the word black because black is like a slur. 
Mm. And this is typical in lots of parts of the Caribbean, West Indies. But in London, you know, where there are people from Africa and people from the Caribbean and people from, you know, India and Asia, mm-hmm. that Black becomes more of a global social uh, and political identity. And it's also a way to affirm, you know, um, a fight or a determination to fight against white supremacy and to fight against racism and, and all of the, you know, the systemic forms of racism. And that then there's like a unity of black people all over the world. It, and that's the beautiful thing about black. I kind of like it because it's not specific to a nation. It's kind of global and it's expansive and it can, you know, it can it can grow. It can mean a lot of different things. Like when you find out that people in the Philippines are calling themselves black or, you know, claiming mm-hmm. black power, like it can mean a lot of things. It can always grow and expand. Or you have Afro-Latinos now who are like claiming their identity as people of African descent. So I like that the term is expansive enough to include lots of different people and it and um and it definitely is global. It's not limited to just you know, African-Americans. All right. Um, I, I think I know the answer to this one too. Christmas or Kwanzaa? You got me. I'm a Kwanzaa girl. Kwanzaa. <laughs> I love, I love Kwanzaa. And, and um, I will elaborate on Kwanzaa. Mm-hmm. Um, Milana Karengo, Dr. Milana Karengo, who started Kwanzaa. He is an, the ultimate cultural warrior. Like, and he developed Kwanzaa, which is a cultural holiday and reconnects us to Africa, to, to um, some African traditions and rituals. And, and that, that to me, like that, that's what it's all about. Like, that's what I hope to be able to do in my life is like be a part of a bridge that brings us back to our culture. Even though we feel like we lost our culture, but, you know, the process of just reconnecting to our culture. And that's what Kwanzaa is for me. So I love Kwanzaa. You could leave us with like your favorite quote, maybe, and what it means to you, if that's not too much to ask. Okay. Last thing. (laughs) So my favorite quote, Mm -hmm. um, it is, you're going to like this one. It is the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Wow. And that is by Audre Lorde. <laughs> yes. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So we got to think about that. I love that. Um, I don't want to get into it too much. But, but to me, it means like you hear people talk a lot about how, you know, you got to get money. You got to get out there make your money, get your paper. Da, da, mm-hmm. da. Those are those are the tools of the same system. That, <laughs> like, like it's a reminder to like, don't, don't rely, you know, learn our own, learn, learn what belongs to us, right? The master's mm-hmm. tools will never dismantle the master's house. Like you made me read that book about the Haitian revolution. Ah, you know? uh-huh. And you know what was successful is that they took it back home and used, you know, um, our own tools. So you want to dismantle the master's house. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah, use those tools. That is so interesting, man. Just like, you know, thinking outside the box. Yeah, you know? think outside the box. Like those tools were there for, for a reason. Like they're there to maintain everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. So, yeah, Audrey Lord. I love it. 
All right, guys, that that is our time today. Uh, remember, the mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G. I will see you next time on Mastermind.